Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Movie Place with Rick and Jeff. I'm Rick. What up? I'm Jeff. And today, we're looking backwards. We're in a new decade, Jeff, and we're looking back at 2019 year review, including our top 10 list for 2019. Rick, what are our general thoughts on the year? I was ready to lambast this year. I was ready to go hard on how mediocre this year was compared to the previous few years. And then November and December hit, and we got so many gems. So I thought this year overall was a very mediocre year with some major disappointments in terms of big budget box office and movies. But Oscar season, November, December, all those movies saved this year. Yeah, I think the first couple months, first like eight or nine months, were pretty underwhelming. But on the other hand, that's when I actually started (laughs) taking my career seriously. (laughs) So I don't know if I just didn't have time to watch and pay attention to all the movies I wanted to watch. Yeah, I I feel like the first half of the year, there was really only a handful of good movies. I think the perception this year has been highly colored by some major uh, disappointments in terms of blockbusters, such as Terminator and Hobbs and Shaw, where that colored our view and our perception of the year because most people just see the unsuccessful movies and automatically that becomes the narrative. Hold on, are we talking about successful and unsuccessful in terms of financially, or were they good? Yes. (laughs) Because... I enjoyed Hobbs and Shaw. It was dumb, but I enjoyed it. Did it lose money? It actually made a lot of money as we can transition now because before we get into our top 10 list, we'd like to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. And I think the best way to look at the big picture in this year is to look at the top 10 list in terms of worldwide box office. I think this will be very revealing to how the year went. All right. So what do we got, Rick? So, in reverse order, at number 10, we have Hop, the aforementioned Hobbs and Shaw. So, it did make a lot of money. We have uh, Star Wars. <laughs> See, that's me forgetting the subtitle of Star Wars for a second. I think it encapsulates how... Underwhelming um, <laughs> of a movie it was? Yes. Uh, Star Wars The Rise of Star- uh, Skywalker, number 9. Number 8, Aladdin. Number seven, Joker, which turned out to be the most bang for the buck because it was made for under $100 million, so closer to 60 and it made over a billion dollars. Right, because there wasn't really many special effects, and I don't know, did Joaquin take a big paycheck for this, or why was it the best bang for the buck? Because in terms of investment and return on money for studios, this is... Uh, what people look for because Joker even though it didn't make as much money as something let's say Avengers was more profitable than Avengers right higher return on investment in terms of percentage got it yeah so the tops we're going into the top six now and 
there's a trend here. I want to see if you can spot it. We have Toy Story 4, Frozen 2, Captain Marvel, Spider-Man, Lion King, and of course, the Avengers. I'm sensing something. <laughs> hmm. High CGI budget? <laughs> <laughs> no, because then cats would be on this list. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> Oh, poor cats. <laughs> Spoiler alert, cats is not on our top ten list, despite how much I want it to be. <laughs> okay, so on a more serious note, obviously the top box office movies of this year are Disney movies. Yeah, and usually that's the case, but this year was extra special because not only was Disney the top dog here, they accounted for 80% of the worldwide box office revenue this year. That sounds like they have a monopoly on entertainment. <laughs> well, I'm signed up for three years at Disney+. Plus. How about you? Uh, I'm halfway through The Mandalorian. <laughs> well, for people who enjoy non-Disney dominance, <clears throat> Martin Scorsese, <clears throat> um, I will say that this year is an outlier year because you literally had the most successful movie of all time. You had a remake of Disney's most popular movie ever with The Lion King, and maybe its second most popular movie ever with Aladdin. And you had you had a sequel to its most successful CG animated movie of all time, which is Frozen. Ooh. Alright. Speaking of which, Avengers making the number one movie of all time, does it really count if they had to add additional footage and re-released additional footage. Does it really count as beating Avatar? Yes, because if they didn't do that, it was still two weeks away from beating Avatar's original gross. Because Avatar was also re-released. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so that that sounds pretty fair then, yeah. And next year, Avatar will be re-released again before the sequel, so... Who knows? Maybe we'll have a new number one again. Oh my god. <laughs> Alright. So, Rick, what is your favorite scene of the year? So, there's one correct answer. And it's Portals. <laughs> from Avengers Endgame. This is the culmination of 10 years of movie making, of cinema. cinema and am I saying Avengers is the greatest piece of cinema of all time? Yes. Yes, yes I am. But this is legitimately such a fist-pumping moment. It's a cultural, you know, in, in, in an age, in the 21st century, the Roaring Twenties, there's so few giant cultural moments because entertainment is so fragmented now, despite the Disney dominance. Everyone has their own thing. Um, it's so incredible that this year we had a we had a moment together in the cinema that the entire world enjoyed yeah i think 2019 might be the last year where we all experience culture together because not only avengers not only did we all cheer when the portals popped up when captain america grabbed millionaire or when he said avengers assemble not only did we all cheer as a collective audience there. But also, let's not forget the other big piece of culture, Game of Thrones. <laughs> now, look, I, I know season eight wasn't that great. I-, I know. But my point is, it was the last time that we all, as a people, 
sat together and experienced the same culture. Well, here's the thing. Um, 2019 is the end of the decade, despite what some people say. And it was the end of an era in entertainment because the three major properties in entertainment all ended, which is the MCU's Infinity Saga, Game of Thrones, and Star Wars. And we found out that endings are hard. Yeah, endings are the hardest things to write. It's really not fair. I agree, which to me is what makes Avengers so much more impressive because if you look at Game of Thrones, if you look at Star Wars, it's a phenomenal accomplishment that not only did Avengers stick the ending, the gymnast did a triple flip before sticking the ending. Hell yeah. Out of those three, Avengers is clearly the superior ending. Yeah. Also, the piano scene under the Silver Lake. I like that a lot. I really got to watch this movie. You're telling me to watch. <laughs> I still think my favorite scene was in Marriage Story. <laughs> oh, that's so... Are you talking about the fight scene? Yeah, I I went back and watched it a couple of times. It doesn't get any older. Like, it, it, it kicks the same every time. It is... that That is timeless. Absolutely. Uh, and... I think most people watch that movie on Netflix, so they watch it in their home, and if you live close to people, or if you live in an apartment, when that fight scene happens, you you also become hyper aware of your surroundings, and you feel so awkward during that scene. Dude, I watch The Deuce, and that's about <laughs> the origins of the porn industry, and they hire prostitutes, that makes me feel weird. Because every time I watch it, I know everyone thinks I'm watching porn. <laughs> so once I've seen The Deuce, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of money, the year was clearly dominated by Disney, the clear winner. Let's just quickly mention, Cats lost like $100 million. But it is... Perhaps the best cinema experience I've had since Avengers. <laughs> but losing $100 million on paper is different, right? Because Hollywood accounting and all. Okay, we, we need to do an episode on Cats. It'll probably be a double bill with Star Wars. But Cats, because those came out on the same day. And Cats, I feel like it's such a producer situation where it's like someone was intentionally trying to make a flop. But I think Cats is destined to be hugely successful because, even though it's not now, because it's destined to be the next The Room or Rocky Horror. Yeah, and The Room is wildly successful now, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. So, let's go ahead to our top 10 list. We calculated this by averaging both of our rankings. Right. So, what happened was... Jeff and I both listed our top 20 movies. And for our number one, we gave 20 points. Number two, assigned 19 points and so on. And we added together. And now we have the definitive best 10 objectively best movies of 2019, correct? And if you disagree, then you're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) So usual caveats. Obviously, we haven't seen every movie this year. There are stuff uh, we need to see and. This is a very personal um, opinion, especially as we near the top of this list. Yeah, a lot of these movies are not, I don't want to say objectively the best, but they are what resonates the most with us. So 
they are a reflection of us as well. So don't feel like, oh, my taste sucks if it doesn't match. You know, it, it's all subjective. Who cares? Yeah, and you'll find that out at number nine because we, Jeff and I, heavily disagree on number nine. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's start off. Number 10, we have a three-way tie. Rick, what's the first? So this is a top 13, top 12 list? No, no, no. No, it's it's, it's a three-way tie, but we still have 10 <laughs> movies. Okay. So, uh, Rick, what is our first number 10? Our first number 10 is a Taika Waititi flick called Jojo Rabbit about the waning years of World War II and this German boy in the Nazi youth finds and befriends a Jewish girl and you see a satirical telling of racism and prejudice through the eyes of a child. Yeah, so this movie was enjoyable. Rick ranked it really high. I did not put it on my list, and I'll tell you why. I enjoyed it, but I can't get myself to vote for it because there's one big idea here, and that's that racism is bad. And But Jeff, racism uh, is bad. It is, it is. I Are know. you saying racism is good? I, I'm saying everyone <laughs> knows that racism is bad. I don't need it told to me for two hours. I don't think there are enough themes in here to discuss. However, it is very entertaining and it's very funny. And I do like everyone involved. So it is a good movie. Yeah. Also, Hitler is played by Taika Waititi, a Polynesian Jewish man. <laughs> but I I understand your criticism. And I think it's more... It's a better criticism than the normal criticism of this movie. And what's that? Which is that it's making light and fun of Nazism. Which it... Yes, it is doing that, but as... I mean, come on. The Dictator by Charlie Chaplin came out 80 years ago. And we see that the best way to dismantle um, a toxic idea is to make fun of it. Is by doing satire. I see this movie very close to also a recent movie called Four Lions. Which is a dark comedy satire about four young men who are aspiring suicide bombers. And this movie portrays them as very incompetent buffoons and is a very comedical satire. And I guarantee you that movie and that portrayal of potential terrorists has done more to deter radicalization than any scathing serious movie could have. Yeah, I absolutely agree that satire is an effective way to show absurdity. I'm not complaining at all about making fun or making light of the Nazi situation. And honestly, some people have said that it is too overdone. We've seen enough Nazi stuff. And Taika Waititi was actually asked this question by the LA Times in an interview. And his response was that... Uh, he cited a study that said that 41% of millennials mm -hmm. still do not know Auschwitz. Mm. So he said, that number's too high. That number needs to go down. We have not been exposed to too much Nazism. We need to remember. Absolutely. Um, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. For the record, I did Google this study, and he is correct. <laughs> also, this wasn't... YTT just hogging the camera. He did not want to play Hitler. <laughs> I think the director or producers or whoever in charge made him do it, and he reluctantly agreed. 
So <laughs> don't think he was just doing it as a an ego boost or anything. Well, what he said was if anyone else played Hitler, it would have been the focus of the movie. So if Brad Pitt played Hitler, this wouldn't be the movie uh, dismantling racism. It would be the Brad Pitt Hitler movie. So actually, Jeff, the reason that you didn't put this movie on your list is the exact reason that I put this movie on my list because I enjoyed how simple it was. I enjoyed the simple message delivered in a simple story that, in hindsight, should have been obvious. Spoilers, the Nazis are bad guys. Hitler is a bad guy. (laughs) But I loved how clear the message was delivered and how easy it was to understand because it was given through the eyes of a child. And I feel like at some point in our lives, we all had to learn this lesson. Yeah, I mean, good uh, performances all around. Scarlett Johansson did great. I do wish this Tolmason McKenzie person gets more roles. I think she's really good. Yeah. Yeah, she she could be the next Jennifer Lawrence. We just need to give her more more good roles. Also, like, like, leave no trace. Yeah. Uh, also, the actor who plays Yorgi is going to be the star of the Home Alone reboot. Oh my god, I love that little kid. <laughs> <laughs> so next, in our three-way tie, it's a Pixar movie. It's Toy Story 4. Tragically, our one and only lost pop. <laughs> so somewhere in the ether, we did an episode on Toy Story 4. So this movie is beautiful and hilarious. It hits all the right notes. It's just so well-written. But... Isn't it kind of unnecessary? Because Toy Story 3 wrapped it up pretty well, didn't it? At that very last scene where everyone was in tears when Andy's saying goodbye to his toys. Do we really need this? No, I I wasn't in tears because all my tears were gone from the trash compactor scene. Fair. (laughs) But that was my worry going into this movie. But I actually thought it expanded on the lore and the world much more than we originally thought because... Yes, Toy Story 3 wrapped up Andy's story, but as we see in Toy Story 4, it did not wrap up Woody's story. And Woody now, it's that epilogue, you know, it's that epilogue of what happens when the hero's job is done. What happens during Happily Ever After. I feel like this was a great exploration of what Woody goes through and feels after his purpose is fulfilled and does that go into emptiness or does he find a new purpose okay that that's fair we were kind of anti-centric for the first three i guess this this makes sense it's i'm glad it exists it's it's well done but jeff one last thing before we move on where does this rank on your pixar list of toy stories (laughs) i like three more and two but in terms of it, I mean, it's pretty high up on the Pixar list Toy Stories tend to rank pretty high but I still choose Wally over this and Inside Out Wally and Inside Out are still my number one and two yeah so this is my number six Pixar movie and my number one it's Coco I love that movie I feel like this movie does explore a lot but this is the fourth time we've gone back to this universe so that's it it does tie a bow 
on the series. And hopefully there's no five, but maybe there will be. But I'm excited to see what Pixar comes up with, especially next year as they have original movies again. All right. Okay. So let's see our last one, which is also the last three-way tie for number 10. Yeah. So this is 10, not 11 or 12. Yes, this is rank 10. (laughs) It is Little Women. Now, I initially was a little hesitant to watch Little Women because... Because you're not a little woman. Yeah, right? But when I saw Greta Gerwig and Saoirse, I'm like, all right, son of a bitch, I'm in. (laughs) I was in this for Florence Pugh. Yeah, Rick is in love with Florence Pugh. Uh, I'm in love with her talent. Uh, right. This is one of three movies on my top ten. Three Florence Pugh movies on my top twenty list. Spoilers. <laughs> so I think Little Women have has been remade a lot, but this is the best version of the story. I say as someone that did not see the Winona Ryder <laughs> movie and haven't read the book, so that is maybe not saying much, but still. Jeff, you have no excuse. The book's been out for 150 years. I don't read fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I have read the book, and it's actually a pretty influential book. You know, this is something people across the world connect with. And actually, the movie isn't just a retelling of the book. It actually changes up significantly. Spoilers for this 150-year-old story. So the book is actually in chronological order, meaning... The four, it's about four sisters who grew up in the midst of the American Civil War. So it starts off with their teenage years and goes on to their adulthood. And when people think of Little Women, they tend to think of those idyllic teenage years. But those adult years are also very powerful and very impactful. And I feel like Greta Gerwig really emphasizes that story by starting with the adult years and flashing back towards the kid years and more acutely connecting the dots between the two timelines. The other uh, difference is that the ending of the book is changed and left over to interpretation because in the ending of the book, the main character, Joe, ultimately marries. And a lot of people believe that Alcott, the author, wanted to keep Joe as a spinster and not marry, but as the custom of the time, she was worried that the book would not sell. So in this, the scene where she unites with her future husband at train station is almost played up for laughs and done in a very cheesy way. And it it's left open to interpretation whether that scene happened at all or whether that was just an ending in the novel that Joe was writing. Right. I did really enjoy the liberties he took here, not only chronologically, but also with that scene. Mm-hmm. It was good. It was good. So Little Women is like Avengers for women. So who's your favorite Little Women, Jeff? I love Saoirse. I think she is so talented. She's second only to Scarlett Johansson in terms of like ability <laughs> to act. And my favorite is Amy. And, uh, oh, big surprise. <laughs> but 
you know, Amy traditionally is the most hated character in this book because she does some seriously screwed up things during childhood. But here you meet her as an adult and she's almost turned into this superhero and she has some very deep thoughts where she's so different from the other characters and she's trying to be an artist in France as the star of Impressionism and there's a disconnect between her skill and the trend of the time and it's really interesting to explore the character so um we may understand if you might not want to watch a movie called little woman but trust us it's well worth your time side note rick timothy chalamet or lucas hedges lucas acting ability (laughs) lucas hedges for manchester by the sea i agree lucas hedges is a superior actor i mean timothy chalamet he's he's more handsome i guess but it's not really the metric right i mean i've seen ladybird so you have to well they're both bad in ladybird <laughs> lucas hedges is much better in ladybird okay so let's move on to our next movie okay so number 9 rick what's our number 9 it's midsummer one of the best movies of the decade it's uh unusual it's different it's got florence Pugh in it you don't say. <laughs> we did a pod on this. We did do a pod on this. But my thoughts are generally, I'm glad I saw it, but to this day, I'm still not sure if I liked it. Yeah, so um, this top 10 list isn't really a review. Uh, we'll point you to our reviews if there are in the back catalog, and you should listen to those. But Midsummer, I absolutely loved. It's by Ari Aster, the person who directed hereditary and it's this folktale horror movie about a group of grad students who go to a nordic midsummer festival and freaky stuff start happening and i feel like the true art of this movie is that yes it's a folktale horror movie on the surface but there's a completely different movie uh in between the lines and that movie is actually a fairy tale Right, and Rick explains this on our podcast episode. Yeah. So, let's move on to number eight. Number eight is an original movie that may turn into a franchise. We have Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. This is so good. It is the best mystery movie I've seen in years. So you're saying it's the best murder mystery since Murder Mystery. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it is so well written. You think you're smart halfway through because you think you have it all pieced out. <laughs> you don't. They scam you. And surprise, you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah. So this is a Ryan Johnson whodunit in the vein of Agatha Christie where with an all-star cast, including Daniel Craig, who is allowed to play against type, Chris Evans, who is allowed to play against type, and Ana de Armas, who is allowed to play against type. I don't know Ana de Armas. What else is she in? Blade Runner 2049, Jeff. Ah, okay. (laughs) So, I think this is Ryan Johnson's best work, except maybe Ozymandias, but that's an episode of Breaking Bad, so I don't know if that's apples and oranges here. I'm going to say The Last Jedi, you know, just to make sure we're not seen as like haters of star wars because of our rise of skywalker (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
but it's definitely better than Looper. Yes, I agree. Um, so, <laughs> so this is a movie. Yes, it's a whodunit, but it's not really a classic whodunit in the veins of Agatha Christie or even a recent movie like Searching, where you piece together the clues. This movie is more about the journey than the destination. And the mystery is actually revealed to you sort of early on, but there is a second layer to it. And the first reveal only makes you complacent in figuring out the second reveal. Yeah, Ryan Johnson did an interview with the LA Times about this, and he said that he likes Agatha Christie novels, but you already know that the detective is going to solve everything mm-hmm. by the end and you're just kind of waiting for it. So he used that eventual inevitability backwards to give the movie a thriller feel. Like there's mm-hmm. a running clock towards an end you know is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it so much better. And the all-star cast definitely helps in this regard because every single person in this movie is famous. And every single person in this movie, it's a legitimate suspect. Where all you have to do is think of an episode of CSI or Psych or some network mystery show where if you see Chris Evans or Jamie Lee Curtis guest star on the show, well, you know they're the killer. They wouldn't hire an actor of that caliber to not play the main role. So this is much more in the vein of Murder on the Orient Express where it's an all-star cast and any one of them has the motive to become the main suspect. Yeah, CSI. But this is like CSI KFC, (laughs) am I right? (laughs) Yeah. So the main character is Benoit Blanc, a uh, a British actor portraying a detective with a French name with a Mississippi accent. Mm Mm-hmm. What a talented man Daniel Craig is. (laughs) Yeah. I watch another another Benoit Blanc story. (laughs) I've watched many, many... (laughs) All right, so next one is our number seven, and that is Honey Boy. Honey Boy. So this is Shia LaBeouf's basic autobiography. Yeah, Yeah, quasi-semi. Quasi-autobiography where it's about him post-Transformers, post-Anna Jones, where he got into a car accident, and he's suffering from trauma and alcoholism. And while in therapy... One of his assignments is to write about his childhood growing up, and especially his father, who is a literal clown. (laughs) Um, And it's about this man, this actor, exploring trauma and exploring the thing that has caused him so much pain, but also the thing that has exposed him to the tools that he needs to he needs to be a truly great actor. Yeah, this was beautiful. Everyone can gain something from it, and it's 90 minutes of catharsis. Yeah, if I had to describe this movie in one word, it's cathartic. There we go. So, Rick, Noah Jupe or Jacob Tremblay? Uh, this is kind of like the last question. I'll say Jacob Tremblay for room. Uh, <laughs> I'll take Noah Jupe. Tremblay is revered for Room, but wasn't that really a Brie Larson performance, really? Whereas Jupe did a fantastic job in Honey Boy, and this movie was not just a Shia performance. That's true. 
I mean, Chaya wasn't even Chaya in this movie. Yeah. So, Rick, what's next? What's our number six? Our number six is something else we're returning to. And it's a Netflix movie, but not the Netflix movie you're thinking of. It's El Camino. Jeff, what's El Camino? So, you remember at the end of Breaking Bad when Jesse drives away in an El Camino and... Spoilers. You're happy for him and then it doesn't occur to you, oh crap, (laughs) what next? Right. Well, this movie answers what next. Right. So, this is the follow-up to Breaking Bad and it's explicitly the follow-up to Breaking Bad because it's on Netflix and it starts off with a recap of Breaking Bad and it's, it's especially poignant because... Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, and almost the entire cast and crew really credit Netflix for the explosion of this show, even more so than AMC, who actually first aired the show. Because Netflix, this is in the early days of Netflix, where the show really exploded in popularity. And Jeff, I will say this, maybe controversial, Breaking Bad, the greatest television show of all time. Oh, I agree. Breaking Bad is the best of all time, followed closely by The Wire. And then it's a bunch of other Vince Gilligan and David Simon shows. (laughs) (laughs) You got Better Call Saul for Vince Gilligan. And then Dave Simon, you got Treme and The Deuce. It's just, they just make wonderful stuff. Oh, that porn show you watch? Yes, the porn show. (laughs) So this is actually Robert Forster's... um, last movie he passed away on release and honestly this movie has Vince Gilman back and it has almost an entire cast and crew back and it's really heartwarming again I'm gonna say cathartic to return to this world of Breaking Bad and to visit these characters one last time before we truly move on so this is a Yes, this is a ultimately unnecessary follow-up, but it's a beautiful movie with Aaron Paul's career-defining performance. Yeah, Aaron Paul is so good. This was so great. Especially when you jump back and forth in time and you see Jesse as a younger person versus Jesse now, and it's almost like two completely different characters. Right. He probably has the best character growth of an arc. Yeah, and... I will say this movie had a scene at the end where it's a flashback and Jesse is with a character from Breaking Bad. I don't want to spoil it, but if you've seen Breaking Bad, it it really informs you of the motivations of Jesse and his wants and desires. And it really makes me want to watch Breaking Bad again. Yeah, this is so good. So... Should you watch this if you've never watched Breaking Bad? I would not recommend it if you haven't seen Breaking Bad. Because I think a lot of the best moments depend upon you watching Breaking Bad. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you should watch Breaking Bad because it's Breaking Bad. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But yeah, I would save this for after Breaking Bad. But if someone comes into this movie blind, never seen Breaking Bad... I think it still works as a movie. It still works as this man is escaping a tough situation and he has to get himself out of it. And I think you can follow that narrative thread through the runtime of this movie. 
Yeah, definitely a great film. Watch it if you've seen Breaking Bad. If you haven't seen Breaking Bad, go watch Breaking Bad first and then watch this. <laughs> so now we get to the top five, Jeff. Ooh. Yeah. And number five, for a long time, this was one of the bright spots of 2019 because it came out early in the year and it was a wonderful debut by a director and just a beautiful coming of age story. Of course, it's book smart. Yeah, I'm glad we both ranked this so high. I don't really have anything to add. We did a podcast episode on this. Yeah. We still love it. It's great. Yeah. Check it out. Both the movie and the podcast. Yeah. So if you're not familiar, this is a movie about two senior uh, high school girls who are on their last day of high school. They're book smart. They stayed in during all of high school to study while all their degenerate friends were out partying and slacking off. And so these girls uh, stayed in and studied and got into really good colleges. But on the last day of high school, they find out all their friends who are degenerates who have been slacking off also got into really good colleges. So now they have to make up for four years of high school in one night. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Go ahead and watch it when you have time. Um, Should we move on to number four? Number four. Uh, number four, I feel like it's a true masterpiece. Num- our number four is a Korean movie called Parasite. This is straight up one of the best things I've seen in my life. It is so good. <laughs> yeah, so this is the newest film by director Bong Joon-ho. It's about a family who's struggling financially, uh, integrating themselves into high society and really trying to dig themselves out of this situation. And it's um, social commentary on... It's social commentary on class struggle in modern society, much like Bong Joon-ho's previous movie, Snowpiercer, which was a commentary on class divides in modern society, much like Bong Joon-ho's movie, Okja, which is a social commentary on class divides in modern society. I'm sensing a pattern here. (laughs) But this is a beautiful movie, and yes... uh, and this movie is officially a Golden Globe winner. And in Bong Joon-ho's Golden Globe speech, he says, if you can get past the barrier of six inches of subtitles, you're exposed to a whole new world of cinema. And even beyond the language barrier, Jeff, Bong Joon-ho is the master of visual storytelling. So like Snowpiercer, when we discuss directional storytelling, this movie also has great visual storytelling. Uh, for example, um, when they're rich and poor characters in one scene, visually, there's always a line on the screen that divides them. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. There's so much to discuss. There's so many good themes and scenes. Just check it out. Trust me, you'll like it. So... Rick, is Bong Joon-ho the best Korean director ever? He might be one of the best directors ever. I think the two masters of our time are Bong Joon-ho and Denis Villeneuve. And those are by far my two favorite directors of this generation. And both are able to communicate uh, to a wide audience despite English not being their first language. 
Yeah, that's a good point. They are very good at what they do. My God, we're, we're lucky to have them. <laughs> so, Rick, what's our number three? Our number three is another Netflix film. But it's also not the one you're thinking of. <laughs> it's Marriage Story, directed by Noah Bombach, starring Scar Johansson and Adam Driver. And if you want to hear more of our thoughts on it, we literally just did an episode, which is the previous episode on this feed. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's It, it has something for everyone. Anyone who's ever been in, in a relationship, you have to watch this. It... It's just, I, I can't even describe how good this is. <laughs> yeah, and again, if you want to hear more of our thoughts, go listen to our previous podcast. And Jeff, that takes us to number two. But when we tallied up our score, something weird happened. Like how we had a three-way tie at number 10, we have a two-way tie at number one. So what's our first number one? So, yeah. So I don't want to say this is, these are both literally number one. They have the same exact score from our algorithm. So we'll just do this. Alphabetically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so alphabetically, to the surprise of no one, <sighs> Avengers Endgame. Yeah, I still <laughs> love this movie. <laughs> yeah. See, this this is the thing. I This was number one on my list. And... My rating of this movie is not just for this movie. This is for 10 years of the MCU. This is for 10 years of our lives. And this is the culmination of the most the most daring cinematic experiment of all time. Yeah, I you really are watching the last 10 years of movies in this one. And it was probably the best theater experience I've ever had because Absolutely. everyone was there, every seat was filled, and everyone was cheering together. Yeah. I, I loved it. Oh my god! Yeah, and th- this is what makes it cinema. It's a communal experience. It's where society comes together, and it's a theater acting as one. And oh, by the way, the biggest movie of all time. Of all time. <laughs> so we actually we have a podcast on Avengers Endgame. And if we keep going, we might talk about this movie for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think our podcast episode was over an hour. So yeah. <laughs> we've talked about this extensively. Also, if you haven't seen Avengers Endgame, please write in. I, I understand you might not have access to email or like the postal service. But if you're hearing this somehow, please get in touch with us. We'd like to know why you haven't seen it. Yeah, how is it like being Amish? <laughs> um, so let's go to our other number one, Jeff. Um, no, it's not that other Netflix movie you're thinking of. Rick, what is this other Netflix movie that everyone's thinking about that you say everyone's thinking about, but I don't know what you're talking about? Oh, I mean, The Irishman. Oh, you mean season one of The Irishman? <laughs> See, I started that movie last decade, and I feel like I'm still watching it. <laughs> to be fair, we can put it as an honorable mention because it was on Jeff's top ten list, but, oh man, it was the perfect confluence of 
being such a long dry out movie on a platform where people can just easily turn it off. And I feel like it was it was aggressively dull and in your face with how stretched out it is. I felt like The Irishman was long, <laughs> but I don't feel like it was three and a half hours long. I know it was, but it felt more like two hours 45, like Once mm. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, that is not to discourage this type of movie making. One of my favorite movies of the decade is Silence, also a contemplative movie by Martin Scorsese, and it's literally one of my favorite movies of all time. But I felt like Silence had a immersiveness to it that was missing from The Irishman, and it was a movie unaided by CGI. I liked The Irishman. <laughs> okay, anyway... Rick, what's our other number one movie? Our number one movie, our other number one movie, might surprise you. It's The Farewell. It's beautiful. It's just (laughs) great. This is a movie starring Aquafina. She is Generation 1.5 American. She was born in China, but moved here at a very young age. And her grandma, the matriarch of her family, has been diagnosed with a disease that gives her six months to live. But the family decides not to tell her and makes up a fake wedding to visit her to see her one last time. And this is a really powerful movie about the difference between East and West. And Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but Aquafina is basically me in this movie. <laughs> yes, because when I look at you and I look at Aquafina, <laughs> I literally cannot tell the difference. You can do like a um, Queen Amidala and Kira Knightley situation there. Uh, the rapping, at least. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. No, but th- this is so authentic, such an authentic experience. This movie was actually filmed. So, for people who don't know, I was born in China, and this movie was actually filmed in my hometown in China. And I watched this over Christmas with my parents, and my dad recognized one of the landmarks in the movie. And this movie so authentically captures what it's like to grow up as a child of two cultures, basically, and how family members react, and how the cultural differences between East and West influences your life. And it was so authentic to the point where if you hire me to consult on this movie, what they did is exactly what I would have told them to do. Ooh, that's very nice. I focused on a different part of the movie. I understand there's a big emphasis on culture. My takeaway here is that death is not actually the problem. Yeah, We're all aware that we're going to die, but the anticipation of death is really the problem. That's what really tortures us because we can't really fathom an existence without us. Now, when we imagine an afterlife, it's just like us looking down on other people who are mourning us back on Earth or something like that. Our consciousness you, still yeah. exists. I don't know where you're thinking. I'm in Vegas in my afterlife. My point is we, <laughs> my point is we cannot imagine a world that just continues without yeah. us. And that's a really scary thought. And the anticipation of death drives people to do some crazy and sad things. So this... This film gives you a lot to think about. Yeah, and it's explicitly said in the film. There's a saying that cancer doesn't kill you. It's the fear that kills you. 
Very well spoken. So, I don't want to spoil too much about this movie. This is this is a movie you should go in blind. If you don't speak in Chinese, get subtitles. At the time of recording, Aquafina has won a Golden Globe for her performance. And she's actually the first Asian American woman to win a Golden Globe uh, in acting. And overall, this is just such a beautiful and authentic movie that really puts you into a unique experience. And it's one of two top movies of 2019 from the movie place. Yeah, if you're the kind of person that can't really get into superhero movies, because honestly, it's a big investment, especially with the Avengers. Yeah. This is a very good recommendation for you because you don't need to watch anything else leading up to this. Look, I can trim it down. I can trim it down to only having to watch 12 movies before watching Avengers Endgame. Oh, only 12 movies. Okay. (laughs) It's still shorter than The Irishman. True. (laughs) So that was our top 10 list. Jeff, 2019 turned out to be a hell of a year. Yeah, I mean, kind of a focus on the last two months, but yes, (laughs) very good year. So until next time, Jeff, where can people find us? Pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. Stitcher, SoundCloud, Overcast, Apple Podcasts. Google Play? Google Play. Pretty much everywhere. We're the blue thumbnail. And if you want to reach us, go ahead and shoot us an email at movieplacepod at gmail.com or leave us a five-star review. And until next time, here's to the new decade. Here's to 2020. See you next time.